In March 1947, when Mr Kilcullen resigned from the Honorary Secretaryship of the Irish Olympic Council, I found myself the only officer of that council left. Colonel Eamon Broy, President of the Irish Olympic Council in 1948, the year of the first post-war Olympic Games held in London. I had then been President for some 12 years, but in the absence of other links with the past, I had no option but to endeavour to carry on the work for the 1948 Games. I invited Commandant Chisholm to give me a hand as Acting Honorary Secretary and Honorary Treasurer until a meeting could be called. At that meeting in June 1947, Commandant Chisholm was elected Honorary Secretary. Commandant John F. Chisholm was to play a central role in Ireland's Olympic year, both as Honorary Secretary of the Olympic Council and as Chef de Mission of the Irish team in London. I desired to submit for the information of the Irish Olympic Council my report under two headings, Part 1, General, Part 2, Sectional, regarding Ireland's participation in the 14th Olympiad held at London, July-August 1948. It wasn't going to be an easy year for Ireland. Our last Olympic appearance had been way back in 1932 in Los Angeles when Dr Pat O'Callaghan and Bob Tisdall had won gold medals for Ireland on the same day. But no team had gone to Berlin in 1936 because of a new rule of the International Amateur Athletics Federation confining countries to political boundaries. The Irish Athletics Association, the NACA, refused to accept this ruling and was suspended by the International Federation. And this had still not been sorted out when Europe was thrown into war. Colonel Broy, in 1948, knew he had no easy task. We were at that time suffering from the following disadvantages. The athletic dispute in which one athletic association refused to confine their activities to 26 counties and thereby lost international recognition, whilst another association accepted that limitation and thus secured the favour of affiliation to the International Amateur Athletic Federation. The fact that the Irish Olympic Council itself was lying under a threat of being compelled to accept 26 county status. The fact that nearly all members of our council were without Olympic experience, our last participation having been in 1932. The fact of having no office accommodation. The first two of those disadvantages enumerated by Colonel Broy were going to make the 1948 Olympics into a nightmare for Ireland. A nightmare in which the major contestants were bureaucrats, not sportsmen and women, and in which the arguments between the Irish visitors and their British hosts threatened the participation in the Games by any of the Irish competitors. Some, indeed, did not take part in the events they'd trained and been selected for, while others did take part without ever being selected by the Irish Olympic Council at all. It's a complicated story in a way, because there are so many interlocking organisations involved. For example, in the teams selected by the Irish Olympic Council, there were nine quite different sports involved, each of them with their own national federation. In the same way, the International Olympic Committee had its relationship with all of the international sports federations. The British Organising Committee for the 14th Olympiad were the top people in British sport, who almost inevitably were involved in both their national and the international federations of their own sports, as well as in the Organising Committee of the London Games. Lord Burley, for example, was chairman of the Organising Committee, but also a major figure in the International Athletics Federation, the IAAF, E.J. Holt was Director of Organisation for the Games, but also high in British athletics. With so many people wearing so many hats, there was bound to be confusion. For Ireland, it started when the Organising Committee coupled Great Britain and Northern Ireland as a single national unit for the Games. 
This was the way international athletics was organised since the 30s, but it was by no means the norm across the whole range of sports. In his meticulous Olympic report, Commandant Chisholm gave the reaction of the Irish Olympic Council, always an all-Ireland body, to this unwelcome development. To consolidate their high-handed action, the British Organising Committee requested the President of the International Olympic Committee to give a direction forbidding the Irish Olympic Council to nominate competitors born in Northern Ireland. The Irish Olympic Council officers travelled to London and saw representatives of the British Organising Committee, discussed the whole question with them and asked for a copy of the communication they sent to the President International Olympic Committee on the point. This request was refused. We intimated to the chairman, Lord Burley, that in the circumstances we could only regard the decision as an ex parte one, given without affording us any opportunity to explain the position of our All-Ireland Associations. We communicated with the President International Olympic Committee on the 18th of March 1948, pointing out that his direction was cutting across our jurisdiction, interfered with the agreements entered into by our associations and their international federations, restricting their sphere of influence or authority, was calculated to have a bad influence on sport and would tend to disrupt, contrary to the Olympic ideal that it was contrary to the Olympic regulations, which clearly designates the participating nations, no mention being made therein about Great Britain and Northern Ireland being coupled. Despite our appeal, the President International Olympic Committee persisted in his attitude. In his letter, he also directed that we would not call ourselves Ireland, but ERA, contrary to the Olympic rules already quoted above. At home, the two athletics associations were making preparations for the Games. The All-Ireland NACA, suspended by the International Federation but affiliated to the Irish Olympic Council, and the Amateur Athletic Union of ERA, affiliated for the 26 counties only to the International Federation and not recognised by the Irish Olympic Council. But in other sports, the situation was different. In boxing, swimming and rowing, for example, the national associations were all-Ireland bodies, and they were determined not to exclude qualified competitors from Northern Ireland from their teams. The rowing union held a special general meeting and expressed great concern that the Irish Olympic Council might wilt under pressure and agree to 26 county status. They resolved to make an all-Ireland entry for the Games and to affiliate to the International Rowing Federation FISA on that basis. The boxing and swimming associations proceeded too towards all-Ireland selections for London. The first thing you've got to realise is that at that time you had two major athletic associations in the country. You had the NACA and you had the AAU. David Guiney was a young athlete then, a shot-putter in one of the clubs affiliated to the AAU. Now, we had Olympic trials uh, in 1948. We all had qualifying standards to meet, and I remember I qualified in College Park. The qualifying distance in the shot-put at that time was 48 feet 10, and I did the 48 feet 10, I'd say, early June. And... Jimmy Reardon qualified in the 400 metres. I won the British 3A's championship that year. And then, at the time, the, the Olympic team was selected. And the team was announced. And we were all due to go to the Olympics. And then the Olympic Council of Ireland said no. They recognised only 32 county bodies. And the only 32 county body was the NACA. Obviously, I was more interested in competing. I wasn't interested in the politics of what was going on. And then suddenly we got the news that we were not being selected. 
and we didn't know what was happening. And at the time, uh, Fred Morn, he was the president of the AAU, and he was very, very friendly with Holt in England, and... He was the sort of athletics oh, he, administrator he, in England. And he was on the British uh, Organising Olympic Committee as well. And I remember Billy Morton was deeply involved in it. And Billy said we weren't to worry that we were going to go to the Games one way or the other. And subsequently we were told that while our entry had been refused by the Irish Olympic Council, that the organising committee, through Holt, who was deeply involved in athletics... That they were, that they would see that our entry was accepted. But you were going without, in effect, the endorsement of the Irish Olympic. Oh, Party. absolutely. Now we didn't quite understand that at the time because we were more interested in competing. And as I, I said, we didn't quite. We weren't too worried about the politics of it. Now, but, the f- but, but in a way, I suppose you could almost say that you were a sort of flapper team in a way. Oh, absolutely. No, no question about that. Now, it didn't hit us. I remember it was only the week before we left, we were suddenly called on to Todd Burns and measured for blazers, and uh, we were photographed, and we assumed that we were. That there was no problem whatsoever. Dave Guiney's athletic team was on the way to the Olympics, but without the sanction or the approval or the support of the Irish Olympic Council. They had, on the other hand, approved an athletic team from the NACA, but because the Olympic Council was bureaucratically meticulous, they had countersigned neither set of entry forms. The AAUs, because they were not an all-Ireland body affiliated to the Council, the NACAs, because they were under suspension by the International Athletics Federation, the IAAF. Other sports, too, had been through their selection procedures, such as the rowing union, which had, pointedly enough, had their senior championship held on the Lagan in Belfast as their major trial for their first Olympic entry. I remember it well, on the Lagan indeed. That windy course, in my mind, always a very windy course. And uh, UCD, of course, winning it on the day. I'm not clear whether, in fact, we got into the finals. Uh, I think, in a way, we probably went down in one of the heats. We were leading as, as we came to Ormo Bridge and uh, had the misfortune of, of catching a crab when we got into rough water just as we, as we left the bridge, uh, and at, at which point uh, UCD managed to get past us and they won by three quarters of a length. So uh, we, we reckon that it could have been another way around if it wasn't for our misfortune. We didn't claim to be the greatest Irish crew that ever appeared on the scene. We were fairly good for our time. But it was reckoned there were a couple of uh, places on the boat that could be beefed up. So that why the, that's why the decision was taken to bring them in. Uh, there were kind of mixed feelings about it on the crew, really, as you can well imagine. Obviously, somebody's going to have to be sacrificed. But uh, we really thought that if we could improve the crew, it should be done. I think the feeling, in my recollection, it was as simple as that anyway. I'm disappointed we hadn't done better. I remember that quite clearly. And on the day, being very disappointed. And as uh, we all, I suppose, tend to have sloped off with most of the crew, probably all of them, for a, a pint or two in, in one of the local pubs. And um, the racing being over, then the whole thing became, for me anyway, absolutely alive when Morris Horn's hand landed on my shoulder and uh, he said, you've been... Um, I'm sure he didn't use the word selected, but you've been uh, picked anyway to come and try for a place on the crew. The championship was in Belfast on July 9th and 10th. The squad selected consisted of ten oarsmen and two coxes, five oarsmen from the winning UCD eight, 
two each from Trinity and Neptune in Dublin, and perhaps most significantly of all, Danny Taylor from Queen's University, Belfast. And the two coaches then that um, appeared and were nominated to deal with us were Ray Hickey, of course, the UCD coach. And who had produced the championship produced crew. Produced the championship crew, indeed. And Morris Horn, who had been coaching us, uh, Trinity. And then we all were, I suppose, told to appear at Island Bridge, but certainly we all ended up at Island Bridge with the two of them on the bank and us having, from my memory, two outings a day and all of us being moved around and permutations and up and down the river again and again. In fact, I very well remember another you mentioned the first day out on the boat. We couldn't even balance it. I mean, we were all senior oarsmen. We didn't really succeed in balancing that boat the first day on the water. It's quite amazing. There were probably little differences. There were just small. I, I don't mean to say we were catching crabs and dragging our oars, but the boat wasn't rock steady as it would normally be. It's quite amazing. No, I had forgotten that until this minute. I can remember the first run up the river, and uh, it was quite unsteady, quite rocky for a while. I'd forgotten that bit. I remember it well now. A, a lot of, of uh, rowing, a lot of the rowing was done in fours, and in this way uh, it was hoped that they, that they would come to a selection. It was a form of what we know today as seat racing, I suppose, it was, that was going on. On the 24th of July, the main body of the official Irish team met at Weston Row Station for the journey through Dunleary and Hollyhead to London. Two of the swimmers with their manager went from Belfast and some of the yachtsmen actually sailed to Torquay in their team manager's yacht, Aideen. No information is yet to hand about developments in regard to the position between the Irish Olympic Council and the athletic section of the Irish contingent. In the meantime, the Irish papers were closely watching what was happening in the Irish camp. This was Arthur McGuini of the Irish Independent. No further mention of a protest regarding the eligibility of the athletes has yet been made. The athletes arrived in London yesterday and were accommodated last night with the other Irish teams at the technical school's Wilsdon. When we were told, uh, the Irish Olympic team is here already. You have no right to be here. There's no room for you. Uh, as far as we're concerned, you're, you're, you're interlopers, as you said, a flapper team, and uh, we had no place to stay. And this was Billy Morton. Charlie McManus was the secretary of the AAU at the time, and he got hold of Holt, and the next thing a message came back to say that we could stay there. Now, that evening, I remember, we went down to the main dining hall, and we 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 met Chisholm and Paddy Carlin, who, who was chief superintendent then, or possibly a superintendent, and they just walked past us and ignored us, wouldn't even say hello to us. And then we discovered the boxers, the boxing team was there, and they were, they were half afraid to say hello to us. It was a sort of a smile and a little wave, but they kept moving. They didn't want to be seen with us. We were lepers, and I mean, this suddenly came home very, very strongly. And, and no arrangements had been made at all for us. Because technically, you, we weren't, you, you weren't part of the Irish Olympic, Olympic team. team. But it does seem extraordinary that the British Organising Committee could find its way to invite a section of the Irish group, as it were, to take part in the Games in spite of its Olympic Committee. Does, 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 it seems extraordinary. Oh, it, it, it was, because, I mean, I would say that they, they broke every existing law of international Olympism at the time, because the International Olympic Committee uh, would have to recognise the Irish Olympic Council, and therefore, I mean... Uh, once we weren't recognised by the Irish Olympic Council, well, we shouldn't have been recognised by the, by the 
either the International Olympic Council or the British Organising Committee. Covenant Chisholm declared war on the Organising Committee even before the Games were officially opened at Ireland's preliminary round soccer match in Portsmouth. Arthur McGuinney reported the opening salvo in The Independent. A protest has been lodged this morning with the Organising Committee of the Olympic Games by Commandant John F. Chisholm, chef de mission of the Irish contingent. The grounds of the Irish protest reads... On behalf of the Irish Olympic Council, I strongly protest against the action of Mr. J. Siegfried Edstrom, President of the International Olympic Committee, in refusing to carry out the Olympic rules in regard to the appellation of countries which states that they must be in either English, French or Spanish. He insists in calling us Eder, which is the Gaelic title for Ireland, in spite of several protests by my council. Commandant Chisholm wishes to gain the point that Ireland should be the name used. Commandant Chisholm was not available for comment this morning, being confined to bed temporarily with laryngitis. In the afternoon, July the 27th, the Director of Organisation for the Games, Mr E.J. Holt, accompanied by an attendant, called on me at Wilsdon. I received him in my bedroom. He asked me for some notepaper, on which he gave me the following order. Dear Commandant Chisholm, Please ensure that the representatives of your Olympic Committee attend the offices of the International Olympic Committee tomorrow, Wednesday, at 4pm to give reasons why athletes entered from the Amateur Athletic Union of Era forwarded by your committee have not been countersigned. Yours faithfully, E.J. Holt, Director of Organisation. It was explained to Mr. Holt that my brother officers would not arrive in London until late night July the 28th and that I had received an order to attend a rehearsal at 2.30pm July the 28th in connection with the parade for the opening ceremony and asked him which I should attend. He would not give an answer, but suggested I should phone the International Olympic Committee and explain the position. I informed Mr Holt that I did not propose to deal with the matter verbally, and as he had come all the way to Wilsdon to give me personally an order in writing, it was my intention to give also in writing my explanation of the position, and that he would bring my letter back with him, which he did. Furthermore, I suggested in my letter that if the International Olympic Committee named a time and place for the forenoon July the 29th, I would have our representatives in attendance. Next day, there was another bombshell for the Irish Olympic Council. On the evening, July 28th, I was informed by the team manager, swimming section, that his federation had barred two Irish swimmers. I told him that the other officers of the council would arrive in a few hours' time, and I would discuss the position with them and urge immediate action. But it was the vexatious question as to whether our team should be described as Ireland or ERA that brought the row to everyone's attention, and this came to a head in the opening ceremony. The boxing, fencing and rowing sections with the standard bearer and myself travelled by bus to the assembly grounds outside Wembley Stadium and took a position between the Iraq and Italian contingents, which was our rightful place in the parade, as our entries had been submitted as Ireland and their receipt was acknowledged by the organising committee as Ireland. My awareness of, uh, shall we say, nationality, in in these games was primarily was one of a great pride at representing Ireland in the Olympic Games. We could not find the board with the name of our country in English. There again, there was a I gather, and we can read it, but we know reading back that there was a lot of uh, uh, discussion, and uh, I suppose uh, you could almost say argument went on as to whether we were to march as Era or Ireland. 
Now I think we marched as Ireland. Shortly afterwards, I was approached by one of the Chief Marshal Staff Officers who inquired what country. I informed him, Ireland. He looked up his list and told me Ireland was not on it, but he had Ada. The first, the first thing I remember was that uh, we were... But when I saw the... person saw the word era and on the sign, I said, God, that's strange, because we're, we're Ireland, era. That's... I know it's a word for Ireland, all right, but that's not us. We're Ireland. I pointed out to him that according to their own instructions, everything in connection with the opening ceremony was to be in English, and in view of this, we were in our right place in the parade. He was somewhat perturbed and stated that if we persisted, we would not be allowed in the parade. We, we, we were unaware of the, of the arguments that were, that were uh, in progress, uh, but I do remember being in the area with the Indians uh, before the start of the parade. He asked if I would come with him to see the Chief Marshal. This I did, and met the Assistant Chief Marshal, Colonel Johnston, and again stated our case. He replied that we were Aire on the list. The people of England knew us as Aire, and any letters he sent to his brother-in-law over there were addressed as Aire. Our team manager, a chap called DSF O'Leary, mentioned to me that there was, a di- there was going to be a problem as regards which uh, country we would, which uh, banner we would march under, uh, arising out of the fact that one member of the team was in fact from the north of Ireland. So I remarked on this, it was absolute nonsense and that surely this could be sorted out very simply. Um, the next thing I was aware of was that poor Dan Taylor came along to me and said, look, Dennis, I'm awfully sorry about this problem. I said, why should you be sorry about it? And uh, what is the problem? He then informed me that if we persisted in this attitude and maintained our position in the parade as Ireland, it would only cause confusion, as the arrangements were already made for us as Ada and that we would be stopped at a tunnel leading to the stadium. We turned up for the parade. Now all the nations assembled outside the stadium, and we went down and we ran slap into a a, a raging argument because uh, the Olympic Council of Ireland wanted to march under the word Ireland, all this rowing went on there. It was a most unedifying spectacle, an embarrassing spectacle. But eventually, uh, so that we could take part in the parade, not the, the Olympic Council, the official team could take part in the parade. They were told straight out, either you march under ERA, under E. There is no way you'll march in the parade if you don't do that. I stated that we were not out to cause confusion or any incident but I was officially protesting against the organising committee's action in refusing to carry out their own rules and asked them to convey this protest to the chairman of the organising committee. This he promised to do. Uh, We probably were aware of representatives coming and going or whatever and discussions going on about it. but uh, lining up for that, I mean, we were just full of excitement with this parade. Again, a lovely day, and I remember we sat and we were chatting with members of the uh, United Kingdom, I suppose they were, marching in, in the Olympic Games. Uh, and in particular, and this is only a side note, was Maureen Gardner, who was to come to great fame shortly by dead heating in the, I think it was the 80-metre hurdles, with um, Fanny Blankerscone. Who, of course, was the athlete of the... The athlete of the Games, won four golds, of the Flying Dutch Woman. However, she, she was there with our group. I, I'm not quite sure how we 
happen to be so close together. But we, well, I suppose this is, there's all this as we're sitting and waiting for the whole thing to happen. Sitting and waiting. While, while the bureaucrats were arguing, arguing. where you should march. Sweating it out in the background. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. On returning to our contingent, I called the team managers together and stated the position and asked them their opinion on the question of withdrawing from the parade. They stated that the competitors were anxious to take part. We had made our protest, and that was all we could do at the moment. If we withdrew, our action was bound to be misconstrued. It was eventually decided to take part. We were particularly annoyed about it for the simple reason that in all, at that time, all in in the Parade of Nations, athletics as the traditional sport of the Olympics, the athletes always marched at the front. By the time this entire row finished, we had been relegated to the very back. But you did actually march oh, with we the did, Irish yeah. party we in did, spite yeah. of not being part of the official team. There was, if you like, there was a little division between the end of the official team and us. We marched at the back, and the I tailenders. See, I see from a photograph just above yeah. us here now in your office that yep. the placard in front of you in is the it? actual arena is error. Error. I made it clear. T- I, I know when I can remember it. The, the, the ultimatum was either you march under error or you do not march at all. And the, the, there was quite a row there between members of the, the, the organising committee uh, in London and the Irish officials. And Cumberland Chisholm was right in the middle of it. The next thing I knew was we were, we were marching. An incredible moment. Absolutely incredible. It's you know one of the highlights, I suppose, of one's life. Uh, the surge as we got into the, the stadium. We marched through, I think it was a tunnel, whatever, into the arena. And the cheering and the, the roar seemed to be enormous for us. Um, most moving, most exciting. And all the way around, as we went around the, um, the um, stadium to eventually take up our place wherever we were allotted, the cheering, and you could hear the odd cry, you know, Ireland or well done or great or whatever. I remember standing in the arena uh, beside Finns and uh, somebody somebody rolled up a handkerchief into a ball and a few of us played football there so that we could have the boast that we played football in front of 100,000 in Wembley. One thing I will never forget was the length of the speeches by the officers opening the Olympic Games. We thought they'd never open. And the single greatest surprise I ever got about the Olympic Games was when the pigeons were released, because we were absolutely spattered to death. It was unbelievable. We were jumping. I recall the Finnish EF, Finnish, I think there was a riding team or a military team beside us in the most magnificent uniforms. Uniforms. (laughs) Of course, they were being splattered with the rest of us. It was an unusual experience, I can assure you. Not one we expected at all. However, one person who wasn't too happy with the situation was Lord Burley, the chairman of the organising committee. Dear Commandant Chisholm, I am in receipt of your letter of the 29th July with reference to the description of your country at the opening ceremony as Era and not Ireland. I must point out to you that the International Olympic Committee have laid down that the country should be described by the name by which they are known in the host country. For instance, Spain appears as Spain and not Espano. Your country is known here as Era, and therefore the borders correctly named according to the rules. Incidentally, I was the most surprised to receive this protest, for your Minister for External Affairs heads his official paper with Era, and I should have thought he was certainly an authority on such a matter. 
Yours faithfully, Burley. Next day, there was encouragement for the Irish Olympic Council when the names of the NACA sprinters appeared on the official programme for the first day on the track, but the excitement was short-lived. Dear Commandant Chisholm, I am writing to advise you that the International Olympic Committee have definitely decided to accept the entries of the Amateur Athletic Union era for athletics. And inasmuch as your National Athletic and Cyclist Association of Ireland is under suspension by the International Amateur Athletic Federation, it will not be possible for any of the members of that body to compete in the Games. Dear Mr Holt, in connection with your communication of this date regarding the athletic entries forwarded by the Irish Olympic Council, I wish to inform you that the Irish Olympic Council did not nominate or approve of any entry from the Amateur Athletic Union of Ada. In these circumstances, and in accordance with the general rules applicable to the Olympic Games as published by your organising committee, there is no power given to the International Olympic Committee to accept these entries. Your remarks regarding the members of the National Athletic and Cycling Association whose names have appeared in the official programme have been noted. Yours sincerely, J.F. Chisholm, Chef de Mission Olympic Team. One athletics team was out. Colonel Broy was meantime appealing both to the International Olympic Committee and to the International Swimming Federation, FINA, against the disqualification of two Irish swimmers from Northern Ireland. Why has the jurisdiction which is given to the FINA under Rule 16 of the General Olympic Rules been usurped by the International Olympic Committee? The FINA has, according to its statement, been deprived of the right to consider the nationality issue involved. Why has the Irish Olympic Council not been informed in accordance with Rule 11 as to the refusal of their entries on the ground concerned? We have repeatedly pointed out the position about dual nationality in the case of persons born in the six counties of Northern Ireland. We have available here for inspection the necessary proofs in this connection. May we hope, even at this late hour, that the grand sentiments of fair play, justice and sport enunciated by Lord Burley at today's opening ceremony be put into effect and these two boys allowed to compete in the Games. Yours sincerely, Eamon Broy, Colonel, President Irish Olympic Council. An urgent meeting was arranged between FINA and the Irish swing officials, but although both parties went to the Wembley Pool at the appointed hour, they never met. The Cork Examiner reported. Irish officials at the Olympic Games caused a sensation yesterday by withdrawing their team from the swimming and diving events. The International Swimming Federation had ruled that certain of the members of the swimming contingent were born in Northern Ireland and were therefore not eligible to compete for error and refused to allow them to compete as an entry. On Tuesday night, a note from the International Swimming Federation was received with the Wilsdon billet of the Irish contingent stating that the entries William Jones and Ernest McCarthy could not be accepted, as these men were from Northern Ireland. The note stated that the International Olympic Committee recognised Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland as separate units. J. E. Heron, the Irish representative in the men's springboard competition yesterday morning, will take no further part. I know Square McCartney. He, He was the top swimmer in Ireland in those years, and probably would have done very well in the Olympics, but... He was barred. And then the whole team withdrew. That's right. They, they withdrew. Um, uh, the only person uh, who, who, who uh, got through, actually, was Eddie Hearn. Eddie, Eddie, Eddie went over as a diver. Of course, he was the greatest diver we've, we've had, I suppose, in the history of swimming here. Mm-hmm. 
he was a first-class diver and of international status. And he... Um, I remember him coming into to the Willesden, and this the, we were now beginning to appreciate, appreciate all the politics of what was going on. And... Uh, we uh, we were still the outsiders, but by now we were talking to all the members, the the the, the competitive members of, of of the official team, and uh, oh, there was no bitterness there at all. But I remember Eddie coming in with, with with some enjoyment and with some glee to tell us that he had actually taken part in the 1948 Olympic Games. I think he'd had his first dive. He had before the ruling came through. This is true that the Irish swimmers, yeah, the Northern swimmers couldn't. That's true, the Irish yeah. Team. And then the and Irish team was withdrawn completely. But Eddie had competed in the Olympic Games, and as such, I mean, he's an official Olympian anyway. For Commandant Chisholm and the Irish Olympic Council, things were going badly, badly for that thin green line against the power of the organising committee. But he was able to report one victory, although not in the sports arena. At the reception in Buckingham Palace, the following incident occurred, which I think should be placed on record. On our arrival at the palace, we were assembled in an anteroom with the representatives of the other nations. The director of organisation, Mr Holt, in arranging the nations in alphabetical order, approached me and requested that I bring my party to a place under the letter E. This I did. When my party were entering the audience hall, the equerry to the king, taking me by the arm, asked whether we were Era or Ireland. I replied, Ireland. Ireland it is, he said, and he announced us as Ireland. Lord Burley, the chairman of the organising committee, was by this time getting slightly irritated with the Irish. There is, I fear, still some misunderstanding. The director of organisation, who was present at Buckingham Palace, informs me that your people paraded under the E of Era, and he made the presentation also under that name. As regards our correctness in calling your team Era, I quote the following... Under United Kingdom law, the Era Confirmation of Agreement Act, 1938, paragraph 1, Era is the recognised style of the territory formerly styled the Irish Free State. We do not dispute the provisions of this statute, but we cannot understand how you lay down a rule that only English, French and Spanish may be used for the Games and proceed to make an exception in our case by using the Gaelic title of our country when our constitution enacts that the name in English is Ireland. Incidentally, the pronunciations are many and weird as well as the use of the name Era as an adjective. There was no misunderstanding as far as we could see regarding Buckingham Palace for while Mr Holt paraded us as E, the equerry to His Majesty asked us if we represented Ireland or Era and showed much personal satisfaction in presenting us as Ireland to the King and Queen. Arthur McGuini and the Sunday Independent had little sympathy for the official Irish position. It is humiliating to look back upon the past week and consider the part that Ireland has played in the greatest sports gathering of nations since the World War. To say that we have cut an inglorious figure so far in the 14th Olympiad is the plain truth. There is no doubt that difficulties in regard to our status existed, despite much correspondence preceding the arrival of the Irish party in London. It may also be said that there was considerable force and logic behind the claims which Ireland was pressing. There is ample evidence, however, that little tact was shown by the Irish Olympic officials in their approach to the issues involved. Can I go further than quote as an example of what I mean? The actual words of Commandant J.F. Chisholm, chef de mission for Ireland. 
Last Monday, when I was in Portsmouth to see Ireland play Holland at football, a message came from Olympic headquarters asking me to come and see Mr. J.S. Edstrom at four o'clock that afternoon. I did not make any effort to contact Mr. Edstrom on my return. If he wishes to meet me, he can come here to Wilsdon. Was that the correct attitude towards the President of the International Olympic Committee? One feels bound to ask how such an intransigent attitude could help in dealing with any controversy, much less one of such a delicate nature as that involving Ireland's status in international sport. At this stage, the papers were speculating where the axe would fall next. In both the boxing and the rowing teams, there were still northern competitors. The boxer, Willie Barnes, Ireland's flyweight, had a buy into the second round, but then he did indeed box, when he lost to a close decision to a Czech boxer. He boxed in the programme as era, which prompted a reproof from Lord Aberdare, a member of the International Olympic Committee. I feel the fault here is of the International Boxing Federation, who apparently winked at the mandate issued by the International Olympic Committee to the effect that Northern Ireland athletes could not represent era. He was etc. Aberdare, member of the International Olympic Committee. The athletes of the AAU did take part, regardless of the Irish Olympic Council's view. Our best performance, without any doubt, came from Jim Reardon. Jimmy, who, who was the our, our quarter miler then, 400 metres runner, Jimmy reached the semi-finals of the 400 metres. And a little unfortunate that he got the wrong heat in the semi-finals. If he'd been in the other heat, he'd have qualified easily for the final. That's often one of the stories, isn't it? Oh, it is. But he got all. He got the top three men in his heat. Mm. And he broke the Irish record in that he was the first man, the first Irishman to run under 48 seconds. And he did it in the Olympics. The rowers were away from the centre of things at Henley. They still had to affiliate to their international federation, FISA, whose congress would be at Henley just two days before the Olympic regatta opened. The Irish newspapers watched them unusually closely. The Cork Examiner reported, The rowers are the only other team in which there is a six-county man. They are prepared to take him out of the boat rather than withdraw from the games, and this was made clear by Mr D.S.F. O'Leary, the team's manager, in an exclusive statement to the examiner last night. The Sunday Independent noted Wally Stevens of Neptune rowing one day at four in the place of the Queensman, Danny Taylor. If this line-up is adhered to, no question of eligibility will arise. Two days later, at the FISA Congress, the president of the Irish Amateur Rowing Union, Vincent Rowan, formally applied to affiliate to the International Federation. He specified the area of his union's jurisdiction to be Ireland, and Ireland was elected to FISA amidst great applause. The Irish press reported, The Irish Amateur Rowing Union were affiliated yesterday to the International Rowing Federation and have decided, after all, to include the Queen's University man Taylor in the eight instead of Stevens. No trouble is anticipated about the inclusion of the North of Ireland oarsmen, though this means that they may well find themselves in the same position as the swimmers, who withdrew from the games when told that they could not include in their side anyone from the six counties. And the independent? An objection by the organising committee against Taylor's inclusion is now possible, but it is not expected by the rowing authorities who have not decided upon any advanced plan should it materialise. I think it was anticipated there that it, that it could happen, um, a final selection uh, of the Irish crew uh, wasn't made until until we were in actually in Henley. Um, I can recall uh, the whole group being invited to a large room in uh, Hatters Lane School, and 
either Vincent Roan or Ernie Holloway uh, advising us that this is the crew that's, that, that's going to row. Um, I was taken aside and told that, that um, the Belfast man was rowing in the, in the um, elimination heats and I was to row in the repechage. That's the sort of second chance heat. That's the second chance heat. Uh, in, in, in fact, that did not happen because uh, it subsequently, after the, the elimination heat, it uh, come to the knowledge of the rowing union officials, who, if you remember, had only become affiliated to the international governing body they the had their, the day before they had their rules and it, it, it become apparent that uh, unless one had a medical certificate uh, to have a man replaced just wasn't on so the irish crew took to the water as originally selected with danny taylor from belfast at 4 they lost their two races heat and repechage but at the same time they scored an important victory for the irish olympic council although mitchell cogley in the evening herald thought the credit should go to the rowing union Unobtrusively and diplomatically, the Irish Amateur Rowing Union officials, by the tactful application of constitutional methods, have succeeded where bluster and evasiveness have signally failed. In the Olympic rowing competitions at Henley yesterday, the Irish eight, chosen from all Ireland and including the Queen's University man Taylor at number four, were duly announced as Ireland. And what is the really significant point are so described in the English press today that they were beaten in their heat by Canada and Portugal is an unimportant fact of the matter. Let me quote these words of Baron Pierre de Coubertin, founder member of the modern Olympics, which are framed in huge letters high above the burning Olympic flame at Wembley. The important thing in the Olympic Games is not winning, but taking part. The essential thing in life is not conquering, but fighting well. This has been achieved by the Irish Rowing Union, who have fought well and are taking part not as the IARU, not as ERA, but as Ireland. So at the end of the day, who was right and who was wrong? It was obviously bitterly disappointing for those who were selected but couldn't compete for the swimmers and for the athletes of the NACA. It was infuriating, I'm sure, too, for the athletes of the AAU to be boycotted by the Irish team officials. Yet it has to be said for Colonel Broy and Commandant Chisholm however dogged and undiplomatic they may have been, however unpopular at home and abroad, that they did nevertheless hold that thin green line. There would be many more splits today in Irish sports if they had failed to do that. So a final throw then for David Guiney, who beat the system that time, and if he wasn't in the official report of the Irish Olympic Council for 1948, he's made up for that since by becoming the major historian of the Irish Olympic movement and putting his team back into the official record. I, I, I said I met Cumming and Chisholm years later, and I, 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 I was quite surprised, because if you'll appreciate, during the period of the Games, he was an enemy, a mortal enemy as far as we were concerned, because I felt that we had been treated disgracefully by the Irish Olympic Council. Even Eamon Broy, who was then the president, and Eamon Broy was an old friend of mine, and uh, we were ignored. And afterwards I met Compton Chisholm. <laughs> he was a lovely man, mm. charming man, actually, but rigid, absolutely rigid in everything he did. But still, of course, amazing situation that the host organising committee had, in fact, invited a team which the... Olympic Council of the Nation Concerned had not nominated. It's true. I mean, it is an extraordinary position. Oh, yes, we were, I suppose, in a way, 
looking back on it now, our athletics team was possibly the only pirate team in the history of the Olympics. <laughs>